Morning Church, uh, a warm welcome to all of you and even those of you joining us online. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Tim Chang and I'm one of the pastoral staffs uh, here at St. Mary's Cathedral. And today we'll be wrapping up our series in Matthew. We've went through Matthew chapter 10 to chapter 12 and right now, we'll, we'll, as we just read it, uh, we'll conclude chapter 12 and next week we'll begin our season in Lent with a new sermon series in the Ten Commandments. But before we do that, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your Son, so that we may know you and be truly yours. Help us, O Father, to hear you rightly and to obey you. We ask this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. I'd like to begin our time together by thinking about how habits form. You see, a habit, good or bad, is rarely formed in one single momentous decision, like New Year's resolutions. Uh, now it's uh, almost the end of February. I think by now most New Year's resolutions is already broken on the floor. Rather, habits are formed by a myriad, many of little, little decisions that build up, at, that nudge us towards one end. So let me take one uh, example. For example, health. In, in, in choosing small choices, like that one meal where you refuse that extra serving of food, that one time where you decide to exercise uh, instead of sleeping in, that one time you choose to eat healthy and refuse junk food, all these small decisions, meal after meal, time after time, day after day, contribute to build to a healthy lifestyle. And of course, the inverse is true, that one time you cave in and have one whole cake instead of one slice. Uh, or maybe you choose to sleep late and watch Netflix and wake up the next morning in, in poor state of mind. And all these bad decisions to stay in late, to eat more than you should, or eat something that you shouldn't be eating, will pile up to lead towards a place where it's very, very tough to get back on the horse and get good health, isn't it? Now, where are we going with this today? In our passage today, we will see what happens when choice upon choice upon choice has been made to reject God. And we will see its consequences to follow and the tragic outcomes. The title of my sermon, uh, as you can see uh, on, on, the, on the screen and in your outline provided, is a conclusion of our series in Matthew, and that's be, to be condemned or be beloved. And as you'll see, it, like I said, it's the culmination of what we've seen in Matthew so far. So my message will be in two parts today, and that's the outline. The first will be the tragic outcome of this evil generation, and that's from verses 38 to 45, as we've just read in Matthew just now in the Gospel reading. And the last, but, uh, last bit will be how to be in God's true family, and that's verses 46 to 50. And the main takeaway point I hope for us today is for us to know that God doesn't want us to remain in condemnation, but he wants us to be his beloved family. So where do we find ourselves in the passage? If you look in chapter 12, where are we? Last week, we began in uh, verse 22, that Jesus healed a blind and a mute man by casting out the demon that caused that affliction. Now, of course, present there were Pharisees and Sadducees, and they were accusing, sorry, Pharisees and scribes, and they were accusing Jesus of, of doing this exorcism by the power of Beelzebub, of Satan. And Jesus had harsh rebukes encounter that he, he, he explained what actually happened, that they were actually committing the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and that this was unforgivable because they had attributed that an act of the Holy Spirit performed by the Son of God to be by Satan. 
And in light of that rebuke, of that confrontation, we see in today's verse, the Pharisees respond. So let's look at verse 38. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. You see, they weren't asking for a sign to believe. This was not a genuine question. They had their chance. Instead, what were they asking here? They're saying, how dare you, Jesus? How dare you condemn us? Show us your receipts. Show us your authority by where you condemn us, the teachers of the religious uh, tribe in Israel. Give us a miraculous sign from heaven to show that you have the authority to denounce us the way that you do. You see, they will not be satisfied with any sign. In fact, they, they have seen a sign. They have saw Jesus cast out a demon and he says, if I cast out the demon by the power of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God has come amongst you. You scoot a bit further up in chapter 11 when John the Baptist was doubting, what sign did Jesus give them? That I fulfilled prophecy by healing the blind, the lame, the deaf, and I raised the dead. What more sign do you need? You see, no sign will ever be enough because their hearts are hardened in their skepticism, in their rejection of Jesus. They will not be reasoned with. They have determined in their minds that Jesus is not the Messiah. And that's why we see Jesus respond to them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Jesus calls them evil and adulterous, because evil because they've rejected these obvious signs that has already been given. It's plain in front of them. And that they're adulterous because they're not faithful to God. If they were faithful to God, they would have recognized the power that God was doing. But rather, they were faithless in a sense that they were just seeking God for his stuff. They weren't faithful to God. They were just faithful to God for the things that he gives. They were just seeking sensation. They weren't seeking God. So Jesus rightly calls them evil and adulterous. And no sign will be given them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now we saw last week, Jesus is not about publicity. He's not about making his name great and then win the publicity campaign and overturn Rome. Jesus is not about fame or publicity but rather he is there to help those who need him. He's there to save those who need salvation. He's not to, about to show a flashy sign so that people will believe in him. That's not the path of faith. But he does give them a sign, a sign of Jonah. Now, for those of you who don't know, Jonah was a prophet who lived maybe about 700 years before Jesus, a prophet in Israel. Now, God called Jonah to preach to a pagan nation, uh, a people known for their evil, the people of Nineveh. And Jonah refused. He ran away. But in his running away, God caused Jonah to be swallowed by a great fish. And, and, and Jonah, after three days and three nights in the fish, he repented. The fish spit him back on dry land. And this time Jonah went to Nineveh like he was meant to. And he preached. And lo and behold, this evil pagan city, these men, they repented in sackcloth and ashes. So we read in verse 40, what is the sign of Jonah? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, so will Jesus be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the sign of Jonah for the Pharisees was this. Just as Jonah was swallowed for three days and three nights in the fish, and then he was spit out, so too Jesus, the Son of Man, will be three days, three nights in the belly of the earth. He'll be buried. He will die but then he will rise again. Jesus was talking about his resurrection. Therefore, the Pharisees, as well as for us today, Jesus' resurrection, the fact that someone died 
three days later, came, walked out of his grave is a sign that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the promised saviour. And if you have been following our sermons throughout Matthew 10 to 12, I think this is clear. Jesus is the Christ, the, the coming saviour, and his resurrection proves that definitively. But alas, with hindsight, we know how this story plays out. That even with him rising from the dead, even with them witnessing, they, they put him to death on the cross. They bury him, seal his tomb, put guards on the tomb, and lo and behold, three days later, the tomb is empty. Even with that sign, we know that the Pharisees still don't believe that his generation still rejected him. So they are culpable. And this is uh, what follows in verses 41 and 42, that Jesus gives two examples of their culpability. The first example is the men of Nineveh themselves. Like I said, the men of Nineveh were renowned for their cruelty in verse 41, but they will still rise up in judgment and condemn this generation, which is Jesus' hearers at that point, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a reluctant prophet who did not want to preach repentance to these people. Jesus is a willing saviour who came to save those who couldn't save themselves. Jonah ran in the opposite direction that God wanted him to. Jesus was the obedient servant who went where God commanded him. And, and Jonah, in, in his preaching to a pagan nation, showed God's compassion for even a wicked people. Much more so, Jesus shows, demonstrates God's love for all sinners, while we were still enemies, he died for us, that we may become righteousness in him. Jesus is far greater. And the second example in verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment of this generation. As we read just now in 2 Chronicles 9, the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south is the queen of Sheba, and that's modern-day Ethiopia, that a Gentile woman traveled more than 2,000 kilometers to hear the wisdom given to an earthly king. That she traveled here, it's written, from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. That she had to travel a perilous journey because she heard of the rumors of the wisdom of Solomon. And yet, right now, the Messiah is right in front of them. They don't have to go anywhere. He's right in front of them, showing signs and teaching his wisdom personified. If Solomon was a humanly wise king, Jesus was God's wisdom personified in front of them. And yet they refused to believe. But because of Jesus' presence with them, they are doubly condemned. And this is what happens. This is how it explains uh, the next three verses in verses 43 to 45. Now, there's many things we can learn from these uh, few verses here from 43 to 45 about the evil spirit. This is a very enigmatic verse. Uh, Perhaps Jesus is using this parable because this, what kicked off this whole conversation is the exorcism of the blind and the mute. He exercises demons. So he's saying, what really happened here? So while there's a lot of things we can try to look into, let's not miss the point. This parable is about the dangers of remaining neutral, of not committing to Jesus. Let's look at it. So what happens first? First, we see that a spirit is cast out. So there's an initial work of God uh, as witnessed by the Pharisees of that man who is blind and mute. 
that there's a, a work of God in Jesus' ministry among the people of that day. They see God's power at work. The evil spirit is cast out. But then we're told what happens behind the scenes. The evil spirit goes out, can't find rest, and it returns to the home that it first left, the person, the mind, right? It goes back. What does it find? It finds it empty, swept, and ordered. So there is a work of God done. There was tidying done. It was cleansed. It was swept clean. There was amazement. There was maybe some signs of initial faith. Wow, Jesus is so awesome. There was that enthusiasm. But the house is empty. The house is unoccupied. And that means there was no faith decision made that Jesus be the Lord of that house. Hence, it was still unoccupied. It may have been tidied up, but there was no Lord over that house. So it was empty. So what happens? That evil spirit doesn't just go back, but it goes out, grabs seven more evil spirits, more evil than itself, and go in. And Jesus explains the last state, the final state of this person, the end state of this person, is worse than his first state. So it will be for this evil generation. So we see how Jesus acts. He, he healed. He's demonstrated his power. Amazing. But so long as there was no faith in Christ, that amazement just leaves it open for a greater opportunity of greater unbelief to set in. And thus the person remains unrepentant and ends up in a fate worse because it's not just physical death. It's eternal death in condemnation. And this uh, shows how Jesus' mighty acts increases the culpability. It increases the guilt of those who will reject him. And this leads us to our first principle, that the unrepentant who ignore God are eternally condemned. And here's the thing. All of us by default are situated in this category. That all of us by default are in this evil and adulterous generation. Even if you were born in a Christian home, even if you grew up in Sunday school singing songs and praise to Jesus, by default, all of us, none of us being perfect, means we are all condemned by our sins before God. And the warning of this parable, don't be neutral. Don't stay on the fence when it comes to the matters of Jesus. You see, each time that we kick the decision down, maybe I will make a, a, a choice to own Jesus as Lord. Maybe not today. I like what I'm hearing, but just maybe not today. We are making a choice, a small choice, but a choice nonetheless that will make the next rejection easier and easier and easier, that will put us in a place that will be very, very difficult to make the faith decision for Christ. If we make the choice to choose to want to believe in sensations, in, in miraculous things, although those things are not bad, as opposed to faith as Christ has already revealed in his truth, to choose a sensational over the true, we again are seeking faithlessness over faith. And if we make choice after choice to keep Jesus on the sidelines, Jesus, I give you lordship over Sunday only. But Monday to Saturday, please, it's my time. I, there's this quote from Hudson Taylor that I like, and it goes this way. Christ is either Lord of your all, or he is not Lord at all. Christ gave his all for us. 
He deserves to be Lord over all of us, not just a part of us. If not, we are part of the evil and adulterous generation who have rejected him. God doesn't want us to remain in condemnation. He wants us to belong to his beloved family. We, in hindsight, have the full breadth of the evidence of the resurrection. Christianity hangs or falls by the truth of this one event. And this proves that Jesus is who he says he is. So don't fall into the trap of being neutral, of thinking you can say, wow, Jesus is good, he's good, of course he's good. But he's not my Lord. Don't remain in condemnation, but rather become his family. And how do we become God's family? And that's what we see in our next part, in verse 46 to 50. Okay. And we read here that while he was still speaking, behold, Jesus' mothers and brothers, his family, his blood family, was outside waiting to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, my brother, my sister, and my mother. Now here, Jesus is not putting down biological family, okay? But it is significant that even Jesus' own brothers and, and, and mom, mother, is outside waiting to come in. Even the holy family is not a part of the family of faith. Not yet. Okay? Here, Jesus instead, he's showing the transcendent nature of God's heavenly family. That this family is a spiritual family. It's not made with biological connections, but it's made by faith. That this uh, heavenly family, that this heavenly family lasts beyond the grave. That beyond the grave in eternity, what matters will not be your biological connections. Okay? It won't matter whose father you, whose, who was your father, or who, who, which family you were born into, whether you were born into a Christian family or not. Beyond the grave, for eternity, what matters is where is your spiritual family? Are you a part of God's family? So how do we become part of God's family? How do we become the beloved of God? Jesus says here very simply, by doing the heavenly Father's will. And what is the will of the Father? In Matthew itself, we see in Matthew 17, verse 5, at his transfiguration, when his glory was revealed, Jesus was speaking to his closest disciples, and what happens? There was a bright cloud that overshadowed them, and the voice from the cloud, the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And this is our last principle, that all who, who do the Father's will belong in his family. And the Father's will is simply this, that we listen and believe in the Son. You see, there's only one person who has perfectly obeyed the Father. There's only one person for whom the Father pours out the entirety of his love to, and that is the Son. From eternity past, the God the Father has been loving God the Son. And by being called to believe in the Son, we are united with him. What did the Son do? He took our sins. He died for us. And that's why I said just now, he went to the cross. He took our condemnation, our shame, and he bore it on his body on the cross. Fully bore it so that we would never have to bear our shame and our condemnation ever again. That on the cross, he took it. And on the cross, he exchanged for us his status, his identity 
that by being united with him, we get what is his, his status as the son of God, Christ as the beloved of the father. So too will we be the beloved of the father. As Christ is holy and perfect and obedient, so too will we be considered for those of us who believe in him. That Calvin says, for this is the design of the gospel, that Christ may become ours, that we may be engrafted into his body. God doesn't want us to remain in condemnation. He sent his son so that we may belong in his beloved family. And this, at the end of our Matthew series, is clear. There's one application. Jesus is the Christ. He is who he says he is. He has come to save each and every one of us in our sins so that we don't have to stay condemned. You see, all of us, we will stand before God, the God who made us. It doesn't matter what faith, what, what background you come from, when we die, we will have to face our maker, the God who has made us. There's only one God. There's not many, just one. And it's the God of the Bible. And as we stand before him, there's no middle ground. All will be laid bare before him because he made everything. There's no hiding from him. And as we stand God before he made everything, what do we do? We either stand condemned, condemned in our own sin, where we stand because we can't stand before him. And if you have yet to make this decision, please don't delay. Please don't kick it down the road because it will only harden your heart in unbelief. Please don't harden your heart if that is you. If you've only allowed Christ a partial part of your heart, please don't harden your heart. Please don't deny his lordship over your whole life. And please don't think he will be mocked. If, you're, if you are hoping that you will stand before God because you were born in a Christian family, please don't harden your heart. We either stand condemned or we can stand as his beloved. Not because of what we've done, not because we're awesome. No, but because we stand in the merits of Christ. Christ's merit is given to us freely so we can stand before God as beloved. Now this may be overwhelming to be thinking, God, how can I live up to that? I can't live up to that standard of holiness. I don't, I don't desire the way that I should. I don't pray the way I should. I don't read, I don't seek you the way that I should. I know that God, I fail. That's okay. Start small. Remember, it is the small, many, many small decisions that you make that build up your faith. So start small. Believe that Christ died for you, that he loved you enough to die for you. Believe that you are forgiven in Christ, that there is no sin that his cross cannot forgive. Know that if you believe in Christ, you are his and that nothing can take you out of his hand. Trust in these promises and, and, and know that you're a child of God and live like it by treasuring the things of God. Yes, by coming on Sunday. Yes, by if you can't come on Sunday, you come on the live stream. But by making precious the things of God, the gathering of the people, don't miss out on prayer. Don't miss out on seeking God where he may be found. Don't miss out on loving his church. Because make no mistake, it is these small decisions of faith that will grow your identity as God's child that will be affirmed and repaid multiple fold 
beyond the grave. But the choice is ours. To be condemned or to be God's beloved. Let's not make the wrong choice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've gone to such great lengths to show us that you love us, that you don't desire us to be condemned before your holiness. Help us, O Lord, for those of us who have yet to decide, who are in doubt, who are just waiting, not daring to make the next step. Please, O Lord, give us eyes to see our condemnation before you and help us to perceive rightly the full forgiveness in Christ that we may believe in you. For those of us, Lord, who have maybe been guilty of just making your Lord just a part of a fragment, of a segment, help us to repent and, and seek to live for you as Lord every moment of every day. If we've been taking for granted the things of you, of your church, help us, O oh Lord, to be obedient to you and you alone, that we do so because we love you and not because of uh, others' imperfections, O oh Lord. Help us, we pray in this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.